Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and just ask us. The greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by PROST, Exercise for Prostate Cancer, and the RS Health Penile Rehabilitation Program. PROST is a not-for-profit charity set up by myself in 2012 that aims to help men exercise during their experience with prostate cancer. If you want to know anything more about PROST, including our online service and USB product now available, please just go to prost.com.au. The Penile Rehabilitation Program was created by Melissa at Restorative Sexual Health. This is an online program to assist turning software into hardware without leaving your home. This program was designed for people who live in areas where access to health professionals in this area is not available, or for those who are just too busy to attend consults, or even for those who just feel more comfortable learning at home with online learning and consultations online. For more information about this program, please go to www.rshealth.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health, so prost to you. November 11th. 11 a.m. 60 seconds kids watch on the wall in the pub in the tab in the cars we remember and wonder what should we feel for a minute we hold it there welcome to the penis project podcast tonight we're talking with trenton barrett about his very exciting job as a urologist and um his specialty areas so trenton thank you for coming not a problem so tell us what your main area is that in urology that you do I'm a urologist, which is a specialist in male uh, genitourinary complaints as well as sexual health. And um, my field within that is very much towards the functional side of things. So I work in a group called Perth Urology Clinic where we have eight urologists and we all subspecialize in a particular area. And, you know, prostate cancer gets a lot of limelight. We have people doing that very well. My job is functional urology, reconstructive urology, which is basically not cancer-related urology. So that involves erectile dysfunction, penile curvature, um, infertility, chronic pain, and female urology cool. with functional issues. Right. So tell us about the fertility. What, what do you do in the fertility area? Absolutely. So in terms of fertility... A large part of my work is seeing men for vasectomies, which is a common procedure for, I guess, sterility rather than fertility, yeah. uh, and performing those. But then I see the other side of it as well, which are men and their partners who can't fall pregnant for various reasons. It might be that they've had a vasectomy and they're looking at options for having another child after that, mm-hmm. and we may discuss something like a vasectomy reversal yeah. or refer on for IVF. Yeah. And then there's a group of men who have what is called azoospermia, which is an absence of sperm in the ejaculation. Okay. And sometimes there's a clear link to an obstruction or a blockage, like after a vasectomy or a trauma. But in a fair amount of them, it's what we call non-obstructive azoospermia, where there's no blockage, there's a failure to produce sperm. 
to mm. such a severity that we can't detect sperm in the ejaculation. Okay. So what, what would be the cause of that? That's a pretty big penis problem. The, uh, <laughs> Your penis isn't doing well. penis is usually okay with this. <laughs> okay. It's the, uh, the testicles that are a problem. Okay. But um, in a lot of these men, the problem remains unexplained. So mm. we call that idiopathic. It means we don't have an answer for it. In some people, there's a clear genetic problem, which we test for. Yeah. Um, and in some people, there's some sort of exposure or um, external influence that has caused their production to drop off, like chemotherapy, radiotherapy. Okay. Trauma, trauma. So, like injury to the testicles. Look, it would have to be quite severe, but right. absolutely. Yeah. And what about things like torsion of the testes when they get twisted? Does that can that cause problems? That'd be very unlikely to cause a problem to this mm-hmm. degree. Yeah. Okay. Especially if it's fixed yeah. promptly. You know, some some sort of scrotal trauma or scrotal surgery for torsion. I'd say it's more likely to cause a a blockage problem because okay. maybe the Epididymis, which is the fine tubules that drain the sperm, may be interrupted or right. affected by that. Okay. So if someone doesn't have very many sperm, so they've, there's none in their ejaculate, what can you do to help them so that they can still have a baby? Well, I suppose there's two different categories. You mentioned not very many sperm. That's a different thing. So okay. any sort of degree of sperm within the ejaculation, that's not azoospermia. That's uh, you know severe oligospermia, meaning severely low numbers of sperm. Okay. And that's a different pathway. You know, you might look at varicoceles. Mm-hmm. A varicoceles is a, is a common thing that men have. Maybe 10 to 20% of men may have a varicocele, higher in those who are infertile as well. And that can cause a suppression of sperm production mm-hmm. through various mechanisms. And that can be surgically repaired. So in someone with, with very low numbers, you look at that, you look at stress, you look at lifestyle factors. A complete absence of sperm um, is, is a different pathway and, and those men are going to need investigation to try and work out why and see if there's a genetic cause mm-hmm. because with a genetic cause there's a group of people who will never have sperm yeah and they'll never be found on biopsy mm-hmm. but in most of them there is a chance of finding very small pockets of sperm production within the testicle that may be amenable to biopsy okay so that means that you can go in and for a better word harvest the sperm and then give them to a fertility specialist is that's that right? right they will need to do ivf um and traditional techniques of biopsy, like a, we call them random biopsies, where a small sample of testicle is you know, selected and sampled, is unlikely to find any sperm. Yeah. They need to consider a more elaborate and thorough method of biopsy called microtesi, mm-hmm. which is the gold standard in these patients. It involves a general anesthetic procedure where the testicle is actually opened and explored under a microscope looking for pockets of sperm production, right. which may be visibly obvious. You look at the tubes that produce sperm, some of them may be swollen and engorged and those can be selectively biopsied. Okay. And so what, you can get enough sperm out of that for someone to have successful IVF? You can, absolutely. I mean, you don't need many. Yeah, okay. That's amazing. You don't need many and even a small pocket of production may be, you know, thousands. Right. So they might have a pocket of production in their testicles but for some reason it's just not coming out at all in the ejaculate? Well, it's such a small number. Right, okay. in, In a normal ejaculation you have millions. Yeah. Okay. Not just millions, tens, you know, 40 million sperm. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, so when you talk about a pocket of a thousand, yeah. they're unlikely to find their way out. So this brings me on to a kind of a funny subject. <laughs> but, um, you know, when teenage boys say that, you know, if they don't ejaculate regularly, they'll get like blue balls or black balls or whatever. Like, I mean, obviously that's not true. But, but what's, what is that, you know, when people, when men say, oh, I get a build-up of sperm and it's, if I need to ejaculate or it's all over? What? I don't know what that is. I've certainly never experienced that. <laughs> I think um, 
There is a process by which the body will have a natural emission. Yeah. Which so is a weird dream. That's right. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a valve there that will release pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, so is it, it's not true though, is it? Like this whole building up pressure thing. It's, it's just a, an imaginary thing or is it? I'd, I'd have to look into that. I'm not <laughs> sure. I think, you know, people can have sensitive testicles for lots of reasons. Yeah. And um, with an obstruction or a blockage, there can be back pressure and, okay. and a sense of discomfort. But, you know, if all the pipes are intact... Yeah, I'm not sure how to explain that one. No, that's okay. I was just curious. It's just something that you know, young boys say. So, what? Um, so, when you do this, how long are they in hospital for if they have that procedure? So, all the procedures I do are day surgeries. So, whether it's a vasectomy reversal or a microsurgical varicocele repair, or a denovation for chronic pain, or a microtesi for sperm retrieval, these are all day procedures where the patient comes in and goes home on the same day. Okay, and then. So, and is there a lot of pain after that procedure? It's, it's, it's similar to having any other scrotal surgery. Okay. So, I mean, that's a bit evasive in it as an answer, but yeah, mm. there is some pain. Yeah. But uh, it's probably not crippling as long as they take it easy and, you know, wear supportive underwear and avoid agitating the area and moving it too much. Yeah. It's pretty manageable with an ice pack and a panadol. And is there likely, either actually with a vasectomy or the microtesi, for there to be any erectile dysfunction afterwards or not? So, physically, there shouldn't be. Okay. So, there's no pathway by which we can cause erectile dysfunction by doing a vasectomy. Because mm-hmm. it's a separate, it's separate mechanics. Mm. The wiring is separate. Yeah. And the, you know, pumps and, and physical aspect are all separate. Mm-hmm. So by doing a vasectomy, as an example, you're just interrupting the flow of sperm from the testicle. So you cannot physically cause erectile dysfunction. Yeah. But there are a group of patients who will develop erectile dysfunction after a vasectomy. And I think these patients are probably manifesting a trauma related to having surgery yes. to their genitals. Yeah. And, you know, maybe these are patients who might have had a bad experience mm. or might have had a, you know... Uh, a preconceived link between their manhood and performance and their emissions. Yeah. Although after a vasectomy, you do still have emissions. You still ejaculate most of your fluid. Mm. So I don't know how that would work. But, you know, I think it's someone manifesting a, a psychological um Yeah, because, I mean, I barrier. always say to my patients that, you know, 80% of your sexual function is in your brain and only 20% is in your plumbing, really. So Well, it's the only way it makes sense to have erectile dysfunction after a vasectomy. Yeah, okay. And what about, um, back to the varicocele situation, I've seen a few patients who have had pain with orgasm and ejaculation and when they've had an ultrasound, they've had varicoceles. Is that, would it be the varicocele that's causing the pain? I wouldn't think so. So a varicocele is a very common finding. Yeah. So if I put a number on it, one or two out of ten men yeah. will have this finding. Okay. All it is is the normal veins that are draining the blood from the testicle back to the heart. Yeah. And in men standing upright, that's you know, a column of gravity that they're fighting against and the veins normally have little valves within them that keep the blood flowing up against gravity. But in these men who develop a varicocele, those valves become weak and the blood can fall down and cause swelling in these veins. So it's a little bit like a varicose vein in your leg, but it's in your testicle? It's 100% that. Yep. So that's all it is. So it's normal veins that are engorged after a long period of standing or straining from uh, backflow. So, um, you know, in, in those men you can develop a pain. It's typically a dragging, dull sensation, which is there when you're on your feet or you're straining and increasing your intra-abdominal pressure and pushing more blood backwards through that system. So it's not really a pain that should come on selectively. 
with ejaculation and climax. Okay. So in a man with a history of pain that comes and goes more frequently and, you know, happens when they're lying down and climaxing, I'd be looking at other things. Such as? I think the majority of testicle pain remains unexplained. Mm -hmm. You don't find a clear organic cause and it's due to neural sensitization. So it's the nerves becoming oversensitive Mm -hmm. and reacting inappropriately to normal stimulation. So during climax, there's a lot of movement in that area. Um, It may be the culmination of lots of movement in the testicles during the act of sex that they were able to screen out and kind of push through that they then notice after ejaculation when they refocus on that area. Or it could be actually during the ejaculation, there's a tensing of the pelvic muscles and the testicles often rise and are raised by the cremaster muscle higher mm-hmm. into the into the groin. So if someone has a sensitive testicle because of um, you know neurological problems, it may manifest at this time and they may notice it. Yeah, okay. So, so if someone has pain with orgasm, what sort of treatments would you do for that? So I, I'll tell you what, what I would do. But yeah, I sure. Yeah. So look, I don't want to rule out a physical sure. cause for that because yeah. that's always where we start. Yeah. So pain on orgasm. I would like to, you know, look for a urethral stricture or some sort of obstruction mm-hmm. to the emission of, of sperm or fluid. Yep. So just for the people listening, a urethral stricture is a like tightening or or a uh, a blockage in the urethra, which is the tube that the wee comes out. So and also that's the right. So the sperm comes out through the same tube. Yeah. So if there's any scarring in that, it would cause back pressure during the um, ejaculation. Yeah. And those people may also have some difficulty peeing or poor flow when they're peeing. They may have some history of trauma to that region. Um, you'd get an ultrasound of the testicles to make sure there's no tumour. Yeah. Look for a varicocele. Sure. Look for any other organic uh, problem that could explain what's happening. And then I suppose if nothing is found, the management would be to start probably with some pelvic floor physiotherapy to try and re-regulate the musculature in that area and look at you know look at any areas of tightness or asymmetry um, that could be manifesting during the the orgasm contraction yeah and if nothing helps there then i would probably go down the path of desensitization medically with a short course of analgesia sure aiming at that yeah and is there a place in this for like things like um cymbalta and maybe lyrica and like yeah so that's the sort of medicines i would use to medically desensitize that area and i'd use a short course of those yeah daily mm-hmm. to see if we can kind of get on top of that sensitivity and allow things to reset. I wouldn't keep people on that long term for no. this sort of problem. I think, you know, there's there's better long term solutions. Yeah. So, you know, if they still have pain during orgasm despite that, I'd be asking questions about what's happening during the orgasm yeah. and ask them to look at where their testicles are when they climax and see if one is higher than the other. Yeah. That cremasteric, which is the muscle that surrounds the spermatic cord, which is what holds your testicle to your body. It contracts during orgasm and it brings your testicle up. And mm-hmm. for some people, that's very uncomfortable. So if one of the testicles is hyperretractile and the cremaster is hyperactive, it may be being pulled up into the groin, which people find uncomfortable. And is there something you can do for that? Yeah, sure. I mean, if that's found, that is that is manageable surgically. Oh, okay. uh, you could trial Botox in the first instance into that muscle to temporarily paralyze it and see mm-hmm. if that relieves their problem. That would last about three months, you'd expect. And then the Botox wears off always. It would go back to being as it is. And um, if the pain comes back, you could do something called a, a denovation procedure or a cremasteric release where using a microscope through a very small cut in the groin, the cremasteric muscles, as well as nerve fibers that are often involved with this sensitization, are surgically divided. 
Right. So, God, there's so many things you can do and that's the whole purpose of this podcast is just so guys can go, I've got that problem and there is something I can do about it because I think a lot of men just go, I'll just have to grin and bear it, you know. Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, even if those surgical options sound a bit extreme, they could go down the path of seeing a pain specialist who is a physician or an an ethodist usually who specialises in pain management and try less invasive techniques where they use radio frequency to ablate nerves Mm -hmm. or various other pathways. And the whole Botox thing is really interesting, isn't it? There's so many, you know, we often think of Botox as just something that gets rid of wrinkles, but there's so many uses, you know, like I've got had patients who have used it for um, tight jaws, you know, um, TMJ pain and things like that. There's so many. I've never thought of it from a urologist. Yeah, I mean, all those those medical indications came about before the wrinkle indications. So it's been used in ophthalmology, ophthalmology. and all over the body with uh, contractures, et cetera. And there's also another – so there's that use from a urological perspective and they also put Botox in bladders too? Yes. So look, since the 80s, um, Botox has been used in the bladder to relieve what we call overactive bladder, which is a syndrome where there's a urgent need to pee more frequently than people would like. Yeah. So it's characterised by the need to pee frequently and with urgency. And uh, again, you work through a process of ruling out problems, seeing a physio, seeing if that calms it. And if it doesn't, there are medicines or there are surgeries, one of which is Botox, which is a small injection under local anesthetic into the bladder, which uh, relieves the problem. In the bladder, it lasts up to a year. Yeah. So the sort of muscles around the testicle last three months. Okay. But it'd be good diagnostic, wouldn't it then? Like if you did the Botox first, that's your diagnosis. So it's worth having the surgery. Is that right? If it was... Tight for overactive bladder or for the Sorry, for testicular the, for the pain? testicular pain. Yeah, I mean that's often what I would encourage people to do. Sometimes they want to skip straight to the surgery just because they don't think three months is a you know a good value proposition. Yeah, and the clinical suspicion is strong enough to justify mm-hmm. skipping that step. Yeah. So you know, not not everyone chooses that, but it's something I would propose yeah. as a trial. Sure. And so back to the vasectomy thing. I think a lot of men are nervous about vasectomies because they hear horror stories at barbecues. But no, they should not be horror stories. No. Because I've seen so many men that have had them that have had no pain, no I've problems. I've never had a horror story. No. That's, that, that's good. I think that's, you know, you often when I see guys that go, oh, I've been thinking about having a, you know, vasectomy, but I went, you know, my mate told me that it hurt and he was on the couch for weeks and I'm like, I've never seen anybody like that. No, neither no, of you. neither. No. It's no. very, very, very unusual. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a spectrum. So, you know, there's a, there's a normal distribution curve where some people will have the average amount of pain, which is maybe a couple of days. Some mm-hmm. people will have more than that, which is a couple of weeks. Some people will have no pain at all. But um, it shouldn't be a crippling pain. And I think, you know, the procedure can be done in so many different ways and in so many different settings that... Maybe that contributes a bit to people's variety of experiences with the procedure. And so do you usually do them under a general anaesthetic or a local? Yes, look, and I prefer to. I recommend a general anaesthetic. The way I think about it is that you're going to get to the same destination. It's like taking a flight. Yeah. You know, you can choose to be in the luggage compartment and you can feel all the bumps <laughs> and get really cold during the flight. Yeah. Or you can choose to be in business class and have a nap and you wake up at the same place. So I think it just makes the journey more enjoyable. It uh, rules out any... Any anxiety, yeah, it means that we can guarantee the patient will not have a bad experience mm-hmm. and the patients are less anxious and it removes any time pressure because when the patient's awake under local anaesthetic, there's a window in which you have to do the operation. Yeah. Whereas if they're asleep, there's no time pressure and it can be from a surgical perspective a little bit more leisurely. And after you've had a vasectomy, you need to go and um, give a sperm sample like six to eight weeks after, don't you? So to make sure that that it's been successful, is that right? You How do. far yeah, after? Yeah, you do. Yeah. So, 
you do the vasectomy and then you want to wait at least three months. Okay, three months. Right. Usually. Mm-hmm. There are different guidelines about this, but I think three months is a pretty good consensus to make sure that firstly, the vasectomy hasn't failed. Mm-hmm. And there's about a one in 200 risk of failure within the first three months. Right. And surgically, we do a lot of stuff to try and stop these tubes from rejoining, but maybe half a percent, one in 200, will still rejoin. God, the procedure will very fail. Very determined, resilient little yeah, tubes. Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> it's what the body wants. So <laughs> you need to make sure that doesn't happen. And also there's a backlog of sperm that are already preloaded through the uh, system yeah. that you need to clear within the first three months. So they're tested three months, make sure that the procedure has worked mm-hmm. and that the backlog has been cleared. And with that, we can grant clearance. Um, so you also do penile implants, and we have spoken to Shane, your colleague, about that before. But what's the most common type of patient that you would be putting an implant in? It's changing. So I think traditionally people having penile implants because of erectile dysfunction would have been post-surgical. Yeah. So post-radical prostate cancer surgery. Mm-hmm. There's a high risk of erectile dysfunction in that group. And they're already sort of in the orbit of a urologist. Yes. Because someone's done their surgery. So I think they're sort of a sub-selected group who's been hopefully more informed and has had a rapid transition from A to B in terms of having erections. They're not. Yeah. So they're quite motivated to fix that. But it's shifting. You know, I think surgery is changing. Maybe the results are better and people are regaining their erections more perhaps than they were. And... Within the population, there's more organic erectile dysfunction with increasing rates of diabetes, obesity, and medical comorbidity, all of which cause erectile dysfunction. So I think the patient population now is shifting perhaps a bit towards that. It's people who haven't had a surgery. Okay. They've just got metabolic and lifestyle factors that are causing erectile dysfunction with age. And, uh, you know, we're putting implants into men in that category too. Yeah, okay. And are you finding younger men? Like, is there any reason to like young guys that have had spinal injuries and things like that? Are they having them? That's a that's a less less common group. Okay, it's certainly possible, but it's not the majority of what not we're doing. The majority, okay. So, like, so people that have got um, that, so the growing area is really these metabolic illnesses. Yeah, diabetes is probably going to be yeah, if not already the number one cause. I think it probably is already the number one cause. Mm. But it's not an A to B change. It's a gradual deterioration over years mm-hmm. that people can accustom, you know, become accustomed to and accommodate. Yeah. So with a lot of these lifestyle problems, whether it's erectile dysfunction or in women, overactive bladder where they need to pee too often, people accommodate it mm-hmm. if it happens slowly. And it doesn't seem to be a problem. Yeah. You just stop having yeah, just sex. Get used to it. Yeah. It's part of getting old. Yeah. So I think in that population there's a there's a huge degree of under-treatment for the problem. Mm. So it is definitely number one, the number one cause, but whether or not it's yet the number one population in which we implant, I'm not sure. I'm going on this weekend, there's the International Society of Sexual Medicine Conference on, yep. um, and it's virtually, and there's one part that I'm really interested in, and they're talking about, they've got like a whole workshop on how penile implants, uh, surgical implants are definitely the best, you know, erectile dysfunction treatment. And, um, you know, I'd kind of agree with that in from the aspect that obviously I get lots of guys to do injections, but that's long-term. It's a bit of a passion killer. They're great short-term, but long-term I think it's much better. For I them. think everyone ideally should try injections. Mm. I mean, when someone has erectile dysfunction, I don't know if your, your audience has covered all this, but you know, yeah. you work through yeah. medicines yeah. and then you may try a pump or you may try injections and mm. then you talk about surgery. 
So it's good that people go through that pathway. Yeah. Because then by the time they have a surgery, which is that irreversible step, mm. they're satisfied in themselves that that's what they need. Yes, I agree. You run into problems where people are sold something too early and they maybe skip a step. Yep. And, you know, with anything surgical, there may be a small risk of complications. And if those sort of things happen, then they have the, you know, the tendency to wonder yeah, whether I, that was the right thing. I totally agree. I've got – that just makes me think of one patient that I have that's got an implant and he's the only one I've ever seen that's not that happy with his implant. Right. And he's a type 1 diabetic and he's in his early 40s. Yeah. And he didn't ever try injections and his question always is – you know, would they have worked? And he's asked right. me that question a lot of times. Exactly the point, isn't it? It's yeah. a psychologically beneficial thing to do. Yeah, and I think that like when I first met him, he was like, oh, I just, I've had this implant and I hate it. Like I don't even want to look at it. And he's good with it now and it's been a few years down the track but it's taken a lot of chatting and psychological yes. work to yes. get him to that point. And I really, I agree with you. I think if he had have tried injections first, he would have been better. I think, um, you know, what he would have realised maybe is that he hated the injections even more than the implants exactly. and then it would have put it all in perspective. Yeah, exactly. Trent, can you tell us about reversal of vasectomies? So we're covering a lot of topics, I think, where there's really poor penetrance yep. into the population about like the achievability and, and you know, realistic expectations of these procedures like penile implants. Yeah. Very successful, mm. like we've said, but uh, people just don't know about them. That's reversal, I think, is also something people come into always shocked at how well it can work. Mm. So after a vasectomy, there's no sperm coming through, but there's normal production or, you know, there's still production within the testicle. So the options of having a baby are either to reverse the vasectomy and try and put the piping back together so that the sperm can drain out and um, conception can happen naturally, or to go through a process of IVF, mm -hmm. which would involve a, a biopsy of the testicle of some fashion, and then for the female partner, a period of hormonal stimulation and then a surgery for egg retrieval and a further surgery for re-implanting the eggs, the fertilised eggs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's quite a different profile of what's involved. A vas reversal is a day surgery, like I said, general anaesthetic for the male partner, but, you know, small cut on the scrotum, a couple of centimetres, and the results are excellent depending on when they come to me. So okay. within the first 10 years after a vasectomy, my results are 90%. Wow, I had no idea it was so so good. In terms of technical success. Right. What that means to me is that there's sperm now coming through. Right. And that's an important distinction actually because when you talk to a fertility group about their success rates with IVF, what they're quoting is conception. Right, okay. They're quoting a pregnancy, yep. which no. is not what I'm quoting. Yeah. So, you know, 90%, that puts people back in the running mm. and then it's about the female factors yep. and the couple. Yeah. But it gets them back to where they should be mm. in meeting. So, you know, it's, it's better success rates than people often expect when they come to see me. And it does decrease over time. So after 10 years, my cohort success rates dropped to about 75%. And it's probably less as people get 20 years or more after a vasectomy. But, you know, realistically, it's still an option. But would that also be like the time difference between also because the person's aging? Surely their sperm count's not as good as when they're getting older? Or does that make no difference if someone's like 50 having a reversal or 40? So that is a part of it, and that probably plays more into the conception part of it. Okay. So what I'm talking about is just technical success in yep. terms of the achievability of reversing the vasectomy. Yeah, okay. And getting them back in the running. So that decreases over time because there's been back pressure against the epididymis, mm -hmm. which is the fine tubing that uh, drains the sperm before it becomes the vas. Yeah. And you, you know, that can cause damage and blockages there, which then are difficult to bypass. Mm -hmm. 
And there is a procedure that I do. If I get in there and the epididymis is blocked, I'll do a bypass procedure called a, a vasoepididymostomy, which means joining the vas directly onto the epididymis to bypass that. But that's now a much, much more delicate microsurgical procedure with success rates maybe of 50%. Right, so that okay. becomes more likely the longer it gets from a vasectomy. Right. And that's you know, partially why the results drop off. So if someone wanted to go for a reversal, is there things that, like lifestyle factors, like are they going to be better, like have a better success rate if they're not overweight and, you know, if they've got things like that going on and not smoking or does it make no difference their lifestyle? So all that will make a difference to their sperm quality. Mm -hmm. So all those factors definitely influence sperm quality. The only one which doesn't seem to is caffeine, but everything else that you imagine is bad for sperm is probably bad for sperm. Mm -hmm. But... It doesn't make sperm go away. So I think, you know, in terms of vasectomy reversal success, you're getting sperm back through and, yes, there might be a bit more sperm. The sperm might be looking a bit more sprightly mm-hmm. if the patient themselves is healthier. But um, it doesn't affect the success rate of the reversal. Okay. So that's mm. more about the conception rate rather yeah, than the success rate. Yeah, and rate. the quality of the sperm. And that's that's a modifiable factor for anybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been great. We, uh, we've covered a lot of areas. So it's I've learned a lot. This is what I love about doing this podcast is I learn heaps as well. So um, is there anything else we haven't covered tonight that you think it would be good for people to know about? Look, I think if there's, if there's more awareness of all these things, that's a positive thing. Mm. So, you know, erectile dysfunction, chronic testicular pain, fertility concerns, you know, in the absence of sperm, yeah. that's quite an alarming concern. But people who've had a vasectomy may, you know, may want to re-explore their options and should know that there, there are other options than going straight to IVF. So I think really just increasing awareness about all these things is very positive and that's what you're doing. Yeah, I think it's great. Like that's what I think the best part of doing this podcast is, is it just gets people talking about it and not yes. and not having to, they can listen quietly and no one knows what they're, they're listening to. It's, it's applaudable. Yeah, it's great. All right, well, thanks so much for taking the time tonight. It's great. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank Tell you about a boy lives inside me it's been there all of my life hi this is dr joe thank you so much for listening to our podcast we're getting so many emails so many questions and so much feedback and melissa and i are absolutely thrilled about this what we'd really love you to do though is to share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit including any man in your life Simply download using your favourite podcast app or subscribe to the penisproject.org. You'll get a weekly email and new releases and this helps our podcast to get more people. And if you write a review and subscribe as well, well, we'll get known more widely across the globe. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Women, just a mystery to me. I've got a boy of my own now. Fills me with pride to see him growing so fast into a man.